0: And we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobec Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number one hundred and fifty something. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm always so pressed that you know, but you actually don't today.
0: 152. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Welcome to the show. My name's Agent Hobart.
1: My name's Rebecca Collins.
0: And together we run hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Mysteries. Crime. Suspense. And thrillers. You're very welcome to the show. And our guest today is...
1: Helen Matthews.
0: Helen Matthews, who is a psychological thriller author and uh, has published a number of books over recent years and uh, is also, uh, by training, a lawyer and is very, very um, passionate about the issue of modern slavery and how people are exploited from all parts of the world in um, Western society, brought over and promised this, that and the other and don't get it. in fact. Get uh, turned into you know slaves basically and forced to work for nothing and um, that is one of the themes that emerges from her work so uh, it's a fascinating interview to yeah. come with helen
1: no it's great
0: it really is and um of course, coming up next week we'll we'll already preview Ooh. this we've got a special we've got two specials in a row, so we are talking to a expert team of hobeck authors about Crime, fiction and humour.
1: Yes. Can you have humour and killing in the same book?
0: Mm, I'd argue no, actually. No, I don't think you can. And I don't know why we publish such
1: stuff. (laughs) I know you're winding me up. Of course you can. And we're going to talk about why and get under the bonnet of why. Yeah.
0: So that that will be next week and we'll we'll mention it again a, a little later. But let's get into our regular news feature. And um, two or three stories have have grabbed our attention. And the first um, comes from me. And it's actually a follow-up to something I did, was it last week I played, uh, or was it the week before that? I can't remember when I played examples of...
1: I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah,
0: automated AI narration from Google, um, where, you know, if you buy a book from Google Google Play, you can um, basically... uh, narrate get get it narrated in different voices well this is now developed to something far more significant and the same system is now uh, allowing authors to publish audiobooks using those voices through find away voices and this will uh, appear on several retail platforms uh, and spotify so on one hand if you're uh, an author who is struggling to meet the costs of human narration, this sounds like a really good thing. Your books can go out there. They're all American voices at the moment, the 50 uh, uh, voices available on this system. And, you know, I I can understand that. But on the flip side, um, for myself as a narrator and indeed for the whole narration industry, this is not a welcome thing, obviously. Um, But at the same time, the other thing I would say is that it's a bit duplicitous yet again by Findaway Voices, who, let's be honest, started off as a company who not only distributed audiobooks that had been made, but more than than that, they were a directory for finding voice talent and managing the production of your audiobook, and that was where their original um, raison d'être was. You know, the, 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 they they would, you know, you could search. Um, they would recommend five voices for you to listen to for your production. And indeed, I have worked for them in that capacity. And, uh, you know, so they were marrying human narrators to projects and taking, obviously, a production fee, paying the narrator, and then taking a proportion of um, of the sales after that. But that model has been ripped up since Spotify took them over a few months ago. Yeah. And now... Uh, it's going to be about AI narration is now um, valid on Findaway Voices and distributed to several other platforms. Not all of them. I mean, they have 42 platforms that you can use if you sign up with an already made production. But to me, this is yet again, another example of uh, big tech taking a stand while it suits them, i.e. we won't publish anything that hasn't got a human narrator on it. And then as soon as it's you know profitable and possible and advantageous to them they switch their their attitude again it's nothing nothing there are no values and i think this is this is this is where i really have a problem with it is that it just is a uh you know the ai companies and the the big tech companies talk about all the benefits and the way that you know it makes things more democratic and cheaper but completely devalues the the input of creators
1: but there's a is it not a business decision as opposed to a artistic decision?
0: Well, uh, what do you mean? I mean, clarity on what well, exactly that is.
1: Well, what's the difference between an AI-generated voice and a human voice?
0: Well, it's more product on their system.
1: Yes, so it's a business decision. It's
0: a business decision. Yes, I understand that. But they took a moral stance initially. But once Spotify bought the company, that's all been ripped up.
1: Yeah, but could that be because the Spotify moral stance over overrides the find-a-way moral stance
0: yes that's what i'm saying yeah that so happened.
1: that's that inevitable
0: well yes yeah, so that's the trouble with it it's there's inevitability about it because there's no one there's no checks and balances on this mm. and it's basically i mean you know my stance on ai at the moment is um like it or lump it is the whole attitude of the industry
1: yes no that's true
0: um you know it's happening anyway so tough
1: so yeah find a way to Pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, find a way to adapt to the what's happening because if you don't, you'll just get over, you know, run over.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that that's going to be inevitable anyway, because at the moment the biggest problem with AI and and generative AI, which is the difference here, is that you know, i.e., you can make content very very quickly using these models which have only been really out in the public domain for about 18 months now and getting more, much more sophisticated with every bit of input that people are putting through them the the fact is that you know creators so that these companies have been ingesting material whether it's audio books whether it's music whether it's art or it's text uh you know works of of of, of art you know in terms of uh, you know novels or whatever they've been ingesting all of that stuff into their systems without any recompense for the creators in the first place because at the moment there's no legislation to stop them doing it
1: no and they,
0: they're claiming it's fair dealing fair usage
1: big yeah because they're using the existing law as an argument so that there's no morals they're not they're not thinking morally but then they're a business they've got to think about how to make money
0: no, well i think yeah. i
1: know we wouldn't think like
0: that no but <laughs> you know they're thinking about no it's 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 more than they're just they're making money it's the, 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 they 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 have they assume they have a right to do what they're doing and indeed you know i was listening to an interview with terry hayes the author of i am pilgrim and now um the day is it the year of the locust or yes it's called? yeah um which has just come out after 10 years gap um he's talking about this and saying look you know the internet it, you know it was launched and expanded uh, without any checks and balances and still has no checks and balances so there is this perceived you know no one's going to stop us so we'll just do it and to me enough's enough in in my book um with with the with all of this mm. is that intellectual property has a value it of is it does, yeah. and, and and it should be protected and it's not being protected mm. and it's not being recompensed you know if people upload a book from one of our authors or indeed you know anything from it doesn't matter where it's from that is a creative work of art and has intellectual property protection at least in theory um but now people are just putting it in there and telling their machines go and learn this and this is unacceptable completely unacceptable um you know i think it would be a different debate if there was a way of remunerating creators you know, for the um, for access to their work.
1: Yeah. So in a similar way to when we first had photocopying, and there is now a system where there's re- remuneration.
0: Yes, I mean it's not much. No, but I it's know something. it's not much. It's but a token, it's... but at least it, there's an acceptance yes. that people deserve to be paid. Um, yeah. and so here we go. I mean that that's really the essence of it, and I I think it's yet another example of the big tech companies took a stance when it was perceived that it was a bad thing and now that they think they can get away with it, they're doing it. So, anyway, that that was this week's news for me.
1: Yes, well, that was quite a biggie. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think we mentioned this possibly last week um, about a friend of ours, someone we've met a couple of times now. Yeah. So um, J.M. Dalgleish or Jason Dalgleish. Yeah, Jason Dalgleish. a yeah. lovely, lovely man and, and yeah. um, had a huge amount of success as a self-published author. Apparently he sold two million books as a self-published author, which is <laughs> amazing. And uh, I think we talked about the fact that Bookature... Um, have uh, now signed him up to do some more books in 2024 and
0: 2025. So a new thrill series, isn't yeah. it?
1: Yeah, so yeah, there's an article in The Guardian about him, which um, I think he's thrilled about because he's just posted on Facebook and said, oh, <laughs> Anyway, um, and what we were interested in was what formed this decision of his you know yeah. why, why has he gone traditional now he's actually given an answer in this article so now uh, i want to
0: sort of make a point here that that jason was never an evangelist you've got you know i do it because i want to keep control of what i do and all that sort of no thing. that wasn't really the point i mean he, well you know, he does
1: talk about this so he I, has
0: mastered independent publishing in terms of you know making a very good living for himself
1: so if i could I'll, I'll just quote what he yeah, says about okay. that so um They ask, you know, why did you go the self-publishing route? Because he did submit to agents originally, you know, and he he got rejected. Um, So he said, but I looked at at it as a numbers thing. There were hundreds, if not thousands of authors submitting to the same agents every week. And although I was getting feedback that was positive, for me, that didn't make logical sense because the odds were not stacked in my favour. Self-publishing put the odds back in my favour because it put it back in my control. Um so I mean that was sort of his motivation um, at the start of his career. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was it was very difficult and he just thought, well I can do it myself. So he did and he did a very, very good job, as we know. Um so they also asked him, Well, okay, why have you now partnered with a traditional publisher? And I thought his answer was quite interesting. I've gone as far as I can go. I've got three series of police procedurals that are doing very well. And when you're an in indie and you're advertising largely in the digital world, you're closing off an awful lot of other avenues where readers are. Most readers still buy from bookshops. So a traditional publishing house was another route, he said, to open up his readership. And that's a good point, isn't it? Because most of these indie self-published authors do sell most of their books Digitally. as digital yes, format. Yes, and advertised. Yeah. And
0: I think that's fair enough. Um You know, I think that's as clear an explanation. And it's, uh, it's
1: an interesting point, isn't it? Because it's very expensive for an individual to um, stock and sell paperbacks
0: into well yeah I mean getting them into bookshops is difficult now I think that's that's uh you know fair enough and I think that certain indie authors have sort of been on the sort of rock saying you know I don't I just trust the traditional industry la 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 and then end up being traditionally published and um Jason's not one of those.
1: No, not at all. No.
0: So fair play to him, um, and of course we wish him success because he really is a top bloke. I um, think
1: we we should try and get him on the podcast maybe in a year's time and just see how the experience compares. Mm. You know what? But...
0: Well, we should we should go back to it certainly, and, mm. and you know, the last time we saw him was at, at um, the Harrogate Library. Yeah, so it was over a year ago. Uh, yeah, uh, an event organised by Malcolm uh, Hollingdrake. So um, great to see him there, and you know. We're always happy to see him because you know, you know he, he really is a very generous soul.
1: I've just remembered he was the first person to answer the random question. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Well, he he goes up in my estimation even further.
1: Yes, and it was it was probably the most random question I've ever asked mm. as well.
0: Okay, and the third story that we're going to touch on is is a nice soft fluffy story.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, kind of fluffy and um, knowing how much you love the royal family. Mm. So we well, been... depends which branch? But yes. <laughs> yeah, we'd <we've> be <been> watching <laughs> the the crown. Yeah. Um which I think is brilliant personally. I know it gets a lot of criticism.
0: Uh I mean, uh, I have to give uh Kudos to the performance of Ed McVeigh, who's playing Prince William.
1: He's brilliant, isn't he? I mean, Unbelievable. we both think that. I mean, it just—I almost forget. The same as the—I the, don't know who played Diana, but yeah, I forget um, that they aren't the real people.
0: Yeah, uh, that's Elizabeth De, De, De Nikki. I think. Yeah, her name she, is.
1: she did a brilliant job too. So when we're watching it and Tony Blair appears, you don't. think... Oh, that is the
0: worst <laughs> Tony Blair ever. I mean, it's just—I mean, just. He looks more like Gordon Brown than he looks like Tony Blair, Yeah, to be perfectly honest. But
1: the Queen is pretty good. I've forgotten her name Imelda now. Staunton. Yeah, that's but it. But she's a, I mean, she's but a she's... well-known
0: performer and act, actress. She's brilliant, isn't she? Yeah. But um, no, Ed, Ed McVeigh is quite, uh, quite new. And actually, he's quite a lot older than Prince William was in all the things that he's doing. But he's done it. just. You wouldn't
1: know. It's he immaculate. does play an 18-year-old really well.
0: Mm, did anyway, really well.
1: so this story is about Queen Camilla. The real one. The real Queen Camilla. Yes, not the uh, one in the crown. Mm. Um, so she um, had this sort of book group called The Reading Room. I don't know if you're aware about this.
0: No, I wasn't aware of it. So no. it
1: started during lockdown mm. and uh, she sort of started sharing her uh, what she was reading and it became a uh, sort of a book group that people were interested in. And she's actually going to be launching her own book podcast in January. So she uh, will be joining the ranks of Prince Harry, Meghan and Sarah (laughs) Ferguson as the next member of The Firm. I like that. This is a Daily Mail, by the way. I like how they they call it The Firm with a capital F. Yeah, well,
0: they call it, that's what they call it themselves.
1: Yeah, with their own audio platform and it's launching through her charity, The Reading Room.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, she does do a lot with literacy. Um, It's a big thing of hers, and she's a bookworm, so... And there is a trailer
1: on the BBC... Sorry, not BBC, on the Daily Mail article. So go and have a look, watch the trailer. Okay. If you want to find out more about it. Right. Well, look, I
0: hear... This will be interesting to know. And um, obviously, we don't know what the figures were for Megan's podcast. But the fact that it's not been recommissioned tells you a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you wonder what sort of figures... That, um well i'm i'm kind of vaguely interested
1: because um queen camilla does remind me of my stepmother in many ways mm. <laughs> i'm
0: i'm not i'm just going to nod yeah
1: and i th- i'm just intrigued to to know her a bit better to see if my comparison is accurate or not
0: uh it could be it could be yeah um, yeah, no, I think she, 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 you know, overall is is broadly good news um, on 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 many. Fronts. Oh,
1: anything that encourages people to read and mm. gets the um, dialogue going is good in my book. So. Absolutely.
0: Okay, let's get to our interview, and um, we had uh, quite a week. I mean, I don't know whether we're becoming a jinxed podcast, but
1: <laughs> be careful before you agree to come on our podcast. Yeah, it
0: does feel that way because we, you know, people are falling by the wayside. Um, health-wise on a regular basis in recent weeks but um, first of all I mean we were due to meet uh, to, to speak to Helen it was uh, my
1: fault the first t- no I yeah I think we cancelled twice I think one was you went very well
0: yes I wasn't well, that's on Monday so I wasn't able to do it on Monday and then um, we got a message from Helen's husband saying it's been an accident.
1: Yeah, so it was it was about half an hour before we were due to start recording as well and it just popped up and it said, Hi, Alan here and I thought, Alan, who's Alan? <laughs> <laughs> um, that uh Helen had um she'd been walking the dog in a forest.
0: Got a foot caught in a rabbit hole or a, a you know, root hole. Yeah,
1: it was, yeah, and the dog she she was walking the dog and the dog sort of bolted because of it was excited about and something.
0: And basically Snapped her arm, right arm, her writing arm, just below the shoulder, with the sheer force of the pull.
1: Oh, and it's making me.
0: I mean, that's just—it's not dislocation. It's a. Well, they—they they thought know. that at first. No, it's a full, full—you know—break. Um, and as a tennis player, she's really quite concerned that she may not play again. Yes, yeah, uh,
1: it's her right arm. Yeah. She's so
0: this could be, um, you know. So this is the context in which we eventually spoke to <laughs> Helen uh yesterday and it was um you know she was obviously in pain we managed to sort of divert her thoughts
1: i was so grateful for her to do that just to to, you know keep come on the podcast anyway even though she'd been through so much and so let's talk to helen helen matthews
0: well it's perhaps not the the best setting for a festive conversation on the podcast
1: are we in the desert
0: no 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 (laughs) Um, just just for our, our our guest because, hello, Matthews, welcome to the show. Um, we ought to mention to our audience that we've had to delay this a couple of times, partly because of me, but also you had a terrible accident this week. And there you are joining us in your <laughs> sling. So terrible luck. Uh, what happened?
2: Well, um, I can't blame the dog, really, although the dog was involved. <laughs> um, so I was walking, luckily I was with a friend, and we were walking through uh, through like a wooded area on the heath. And I fell over a tree root. Um, And I had the dog on the lead because he's not great in that area because his recall's not so good. So instead of doing the sensible thing of dropping the lead and letting him just run off, um, I grabbed hold of the lead, whereas I'd stopped dead. Um, And so he sort of tried to drag my arm out of the socket um, and broke it rather than dislocated, which was not very nice because it's very, very painful. But um, anyway, I've just got to get through it and um hopefully in 10 weeks time i'll be i'll be mended maybe not playing <laughs> tennis anymore ever again really <laughs> no, no, that's well, i don't play much tennis now but I, I did used to play a little bit of tennis
1: but oh, okay yeah. Yeah, yeah, i don't know about
2: days. the function you know whether you get the function back i'm not sure but we'll see
0: yeah oh, well i really that's... hope that comes back because um you know without tennis we'd be you know, in all sorts of trouble. I think,
1: but it, it just goes to <laughs> show, doesn't it? Something as as simple mm. and fairly innocent as a dog just taking, trying to take flight because some exciting yeah. thing in the can do something so yeah, dramatic. You know, yeah. and that's,
0: it's it's really yeah. sad, and just before Christmas too. And and you, you were just saying that the the impact is that because it's your your right hand uh, and your right arm, um, yeah. you can't write at the moment, which for writer is another it's, massive issue
2: it's honestly it's it's just the worst <laughs> yeah because when you say th- you know when you think about like what illnesses and injuries you could have usually you think oh well at least i'll still be able to write and now like i mean my left arm is getting better um but uh, yeah i certainly can't even do my own signature let alone write anything of any significance and um, i think i was just saying to you i'm like at an editing stage on my work in progress so that involves a lot of cutting and pasting and all those things you need like two hands for. So mm. not going to be not going to be doing that for a while either. And um, I don't know. I've just given the, the manuscript to my husband to have a read through. So I'll have to listen to his pedantic comments on. Um, <laughs> by the way, I've never heard them make that kind of um, an announcement on a ship you know that's the kind of feedback i'll get
1: (laughs) but that's good sort of feedback isn't it because sometimes i think you need somebody who's really persnickety about those little details (laughs) Oh yeah, (laughs) and then try
2: and remember it for two months until i can like type and you know fix it again
1: oh he'll have to write notes or something won't he he'll have to do Mm -hmm. page three she mentions the noise of a ship and it's not that noise (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly
0: Well, look, you know, so it, you. you know, it's um, it's tough, and I guess, well, if um, if using the uh, what would Michael Caine would describe in his books,
1: ah, here we go.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm not going to do the voice, honestly.
1: No, no, you can do it. <laughs> oh, no, to, uh,
0: well, he he talks about using the difficulty in every aspect of his life. Whenever something's gone wrong, he's always found the positive in it, and I guess that, in a way, you've got a chance to, um, if there is a positive, think, yeah. And, you know, uh inhabit that space sometimes so that doesn't get a chance to to have uh you know, the, the space to to come up with ideas and, and explore those. I don't know whether that's gonna be you know, mm. an opportunity.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, the the things could come to your mind that wouldn't otherwise have come to your mind. You never know. That's there could be some true great idea for something that so yeah I've been
2: I've been um I've started doing voice notes I wasn't really into voice notes but um even they need two hands so what I have to do is um I've got like a box I put my phone on the box and then with this injured hand I can sort of press down (laughs) Ow! and um and sort of speak into the voice note because you wouldn't think that would need two hands but it does no
1: it's really weird
2: so maybe I can do recording, Adrian. Maybe I can. Like, oh, well, maybe, there you go. There you are. Yeah,
1: yeah you see? there might be something in that because you you do have a good voice. So you never know.
2: <laughs> a good voice for radio. A
1: good face. Oh, for that's radio. what you were told that, weren't you? Well,
0: I had a good face for radio. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> when I went for a screen test, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah no, you got a great voice. Uh, you know, you know that that's that's not what they're saying on telly because you have to have no. a certain look. <laughs> um, although I did do, I spent a bit of time on telly, but I never did the studio stuff. I never did the oh, sitting on the I'm sofa see and...
1: footage of you on TV, but there isn't any. is there? Uh, old?
0: Well, no, there is. I've got a video of it and, um, I've got a yeah VHS of it, but it's, it's oh. rather embarrassing because I'm wearing an Alan Partridge style green blazer in some of my reporting. <laughs> so, uh, it, oh. you know, it was very much of its era in the mid nineties.
1: Okay. Well, um, well, we'll have to anyway engineer that getting right to digital anyway we we
0: we, we digress as ever uh on this show so helen let's talk about um your writing and uh your career to date and we're gonna sort of often we start at the beginning but we're going to go backwards i think and talk about your most recent book and one of the things that you're particularly interested in is the modern well, I wouldn't say modern, it's, you know, the ancient phenomena of of slavery, but the modern version of it. Mm. Um, And I think that as a society, we're, you know, we're pretty guilty at just turning a blind eye to it and really not looking at the extent of it and the the pernicious way it is being used across the whole of um, our society. So what was it, what is it? that sort of hooked your interest and and got you involved in in campaigning about it as well?
2: Um, So I, well, a few years ago, um, I decided to, like, flee my corporate life. um, And Mm. I went back to university and did an MA in creative writing um, because I thought, you know, if if not now, then when I really need to do it. And I wrote um, a a novel, you know, one of many um, when I was doing the MA. Um, and I kind of knew it wasn't good enough, it wasn't okay, and I thought it was good enough to get the MA, but um, I thought to myself, what is wrong with it? And it's because I was doing that thing, write what you know. And like, you know, what do I know? I know about, you know, bringing up my kids, working and spending long hours in lawyers' offices in London, negotiating stuff. Um, I knew about going shopping in Tesco, it's pretty boring. Um, So I thought, wouldn't it be a good idea to write what I don't know Um, and there were a lot of things I was interested in and and one of them I was already sort of um, involved in making a monthly contribution to this charity which is called Unseen UK which um, well it works with survivors of human trafficking and modern slavery and they also run um, the National Anti-Slavery Helpline where members of the public, victims, relatives of victims, people who see something suspicious can phone in um, and get advice or a response, maybe a police response, if they see something that concerns them. So I I was thinking about a character who was cut off from absolutely everything. And this idea of the trafficking and the slavery was um, going through my mind. And I thought, if I research this, it's going to be interesting for me to know a lot more because i was already interested in the subject um and won't it be more interesting for a reader you know to find out about this hidden world and how at the human level a person can actually get um ensnared into that situation because if we stand back we always think you know why was that person so stupid you know um but of course what i now know is that um people who groom victims they can maybe spend years at it Yeah, they might identify a victim. They'll certainly spend weeks and months winning their trust. Um, And one of the oldest tricks in the book is like, you know, the boyfriend scam, you know, where somebody thinks they're in a relationship. But that person has been scamming them for a long, long time. Mm. Um, So that really was like a starting point of um, the first novel, which is these days it's called Girl Out of Sight. um, But it did come out a little while ago from a different publisher with a different title. Yeah. Um, But I'm still very proud of that book, it's my, my first book, um, and it did enable me to do a lot of research, and I guess I, I do quite like doing research, um, and I also went to Albania, because the book opens in Albania, and um, my character is a 17-year-old girl, um, she's working in her, in her father's shop, um, you know, she's recently left school, and she thinks nothing is ever going to happen in her life again, it's all over, it's all boring. Um and then, you know, this sort of enigmatic stranger from the capital Tirana walks into the shop and starts chatting to her, telling her about um what a wonderful career and life she could have in London. And he manages to dupe not just her but her family. Because once they see the sort of telephone number salaries that he's mentioning to them, they can't resist it because they're quite poor. And um, so off she goes with him to London and her life does change, but not in the way that you know she was expecting. So mm. yeah like I mean,
0: you can see why that
1: would be an attractive proposition so. it's,
0: it's an interesting thing with mm. Albania because it, it, we have um books that feature Albanians and in, in terms of the, the the sort of organized gangs that um are yeah. prevalent across the UK at the moment and do you think they get in you know, as, a, as a country they get a bad rap I mean it, it, they seem to be the sort of mm. the bogey people of of europe at the moment
2: um yeah i absolutely do and um i've thought a lot about you know why that might be um and i think probably the roots of it are in the fact that the country was pretty much closed off from the modern world for the whole of the second half of the 20th century so while other countries were um other european countries were you know making leaps and bounds in both um financial wealth and um goods and civilization civilized manners they were cut off from all of that um, and even things like um, you know having past generations knowing English past generations didn't know English and um, so you know it's quite important for my book that my character um, obviously this was written a little while ago my character perhaps wouldn't know as much English as you would as a young person from another part of Europe would know she didn't initially know enough English to make herself understood um, I don't think that would be the case now you know like Probably 10 years on or so, people would be speaking good enough English. But when I went there, um, I went with my son. And um, because we were two different generations, we were able to talk to everybody and, like, really, you know, um, get a feel for people's lives. And we did discover that as soon as we got outside the capital, um, you know, like one day he was a little the worse for wearing, I was trying to get him a bottle of water. <laughs> and I could ask for that in five different languages. Um, but young people working in a roadside bar didn't know enough English or any language to come up with a bottle of water. So, um, you know, once you get into the rural areas, people certainly were very cut off, um, and that, I think, is a reason. And therefore, they believe some of the myths, you know, like some of the young Albanians who were coming on boats, and this isn't what my my book is about at all, this has happened since. I mean, they've been conned by seeing um, the videos on TikTok, that were particularly directed at them, you know, they are being groomed, actually, if you like. They are being trafficked because they're being lured to come over. um, And then they're making themselves vulnerable to criminal gangs who will want to involve them in crime and um, drug trafficking and all those kinds of things. So, you know, they're a victim in the same way. Uh, They're willingly coming. Um, But, yeah, they've been lured by a different set of circumstances. And to be gullible. sorry, (laughs) this is a very long long-winded way of answering your question. But Mm. the answer is because there's like a whole, you know, like um where you have like a gap in your memory or your understanding or the national understanding of what's going on in the world. Because of that gap that they didn't really understand from their parents' generation what the world was really like, they're probably extra prone to believing those things. Mm. That's you know, that's what occurs to me anyway. Um Yeah I
1: think I think there's some very good points there, you know, because Mm is it's, if your culture is to believe what you're told as well which communism mm. was very much like that wasn't it yeah because i a friend of mine who she grew up in romania and and she's in her 40s but even hearing her experiences of being a child in romania yeah um it, you know even sort of 30 years ago was quite mm. shocking to me
0: well I, it's interesting because i mean i i when I was younger, in my teens and, you know, the height of the Cold War, um, I, I travelled around some of Eastern Europe, my parents, and first exposure was Yugoslavia, as it was then with Tito had just died. And then um, we went to the Soviet Union uh, on a caravanning wow. holiday of all things.
1: <laughs> Great parents.
0: <laughs> in 1986, well, near
1: Chernobyl. It, it wasn't quite a holiday, was it? Your dad was doing some... Research or something. No,
0: he went to a conference in Finland um, for <laughs> genetics, and used the money rather than flying. Um, he he persuaded them to ship us over on a ferry, so we sort of went through the Baltic and arrived in Helsinki, and then drove across the border into um, Leningrad, and then uh, and then round and through to Czechoslovakia, as it was.
1: And he was wearing white jeans, were not he? Yeah,
0: I was. No, but the the point I'm trying to make is is that that you know being. Ex- we were both sides were being brainwashed is my, the, the mm-hmm. conclusion I made from it that my expectation of what the Soviet union would be like. And okay. Glasnost was just coming in and all that sort of thing. And uh, Gorbachev had just taken over and it was facing a national crisis because Chernobyl had only happened a few weeks before, God. but the overwhelming experience of meeting the people of the Soviet union was that they were, uh, yes, they had an element of, um, indoctrination and and uh, but they they were genuinely much warmer and um obsessed with peace as a as a nation and, and avoiding conflict um than i ever expected because we were all told that they were ready to roll the tanks in again
1: yeah, across
0: was... the West, you know, West Germany and um, at any moment. And, and...
1: About TV and films as well. the Russians always depicted as quite yeah. belligerent, weren't they? And...
0: and they haven't exactly behaved well since, but, you know, that wasn't the nature of the people. And so, uh, and they, they were thirsty for any knowledge of what the West was really like, um, I, I think. And, you know, they had a lot of misconceptions that they had been fed. So it, it's fascinating mm. uh, just how generations of people were really unaware of each other yeah, and totally. the impact that can have.
2: Mm. And interestingly, like in, in Russia and um, the Soviet Union, they still had access to a lot of Western stuff, you know, even though um, the authorities tried not to. But the, one of the things that sort of struck me about Albania was, you know, they weren't allowed to see like any Hollywood movies at all or anything in English. Um so one of the few people that they were allowed to see the films of was Norman Wisdom. Norman Wisdom, yeah. Because remember because yeah. his his were mime there was no um you know English speaking propaganda. <laughs> so he's actually a big celebrity in
0: oh, Albania which
2: is just nuts isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. I I've seen footage yeah. of him arriving in Tirana for the first yeah. time and being mobbed. And I mean I mean <laughs> part so of it sad. it was because he was always the the little guy being suppressed by the um the sort of capitalist yeah. Uh bosses, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> you know, Mr. Pitkins or whatever his name was. And um it was uh yeah, so he you know, he had that appeal. But yeah, he was the one of the few things from the West that they were allowed to to be exposed to, and um <laughs> and, and and he was monstrously popular. <laughs> um but it's in terms of taking it though from that research uh and then creating a character like Odetta goes into you know the spiral of being sort of sucked into a vortex over in the west and and Mm. and exploited um how did how did you approach that in terms of getting it to the point where you were happy with its authenticity
2: um yeah I think that was why I decided I needed to go to Albania because I'd um I'd created you know in I obviously I'd done a lot of reading and I locked um, seen a lot of YouTube videos um, and you know swooped over the country with Google Earth. Um but I really kind of needed to know that the the village that I created in my mind, um, you know was that what it would really be like. So um when I went on this, um, I, I pretty much had it written, um, and I needed to see what I needed if I needed to change anything. and so um when when I got there, there were some various facts that I needed to check out. And I managed to arrange um, through a, a tour company to spend half a day with an Albanian family that lived in a, a rural area. Um, obviously, they didn't speak English, but I had like a guide, we had a guide with us who interpreted. Um, and it was just uncanny. It was almost like I dreamed their life because <laughs> I, I, you know, I'd already written this, I dreamed what their village was like. Um, and this family even had a shop. Um, it wasn't a grocer's like I'd imagined the Adetta's family it was um, like an ironmonger and car parts and stuff like that. But, um, you know, you went out the back of their house and there was all this subsistence living still going on. It was all, um, you know, growing their own stuff. They had their own, um, their own chickens and, you know, just just like it had been for generations. And I thought, you know, I, I've, I've sort of figured it out. I've sort of got it right. Um, but if I could just, pop back to what you said about, um, you know, some of the books you've published about international crime
1: Mm.
2: and how I've approached that in, in my, my book is, um, so I wanted like a human scale story because I don't know about international crime on a massive scale. Um, So obviously I've got quite a lot of baddies. They are pretty bad, but um, I've tried to give some of them a bit of psychological realism for why they might have acted in the way they did, you know, as well as just being bad. Um, and I've kind of envisaged it like there's lots of links in the in the chain, so even though the people that are exploiting a debtor and some other people um, are pretty bad, they're really quite far down the chain, and as you get further up the food chain, you know, there'll be the bigger people who are creaming off more and more money, you know, there's money all the way along, um, but I don't go very, very high in that hierarchy of bad you know these are the um the bad people in the street that you know like they're involved a couple of links in the chain, but they're not involved they wouldn't know who the mr biggs are who are making loads of money and and really pulling pulling the strings Um, and i'm i kind of envisage that's how it works um Mm. i I think that's probably how it works
0: So. so based on on that research and also uh your knowledge through the the charity um how big a problem is it? I mean, how, you know, are we, are we willfully turning a blind eye to what is something, you know, that's, you know, in every neighbourhood or is it, is it in in pockets and, and, and more sort of, you know, a, a smaller issue than that?
2: Um, I think it's, um, it's the iceberg thing. You know, the amount of cases that come to light are just the ones that are above the surface. And probably you know, like below the surface is another ninety percent. So, yeah, you know, I don't know if, if ten thousand um, cases were uncovered in the UK in one particular year. Um, then you know, there's another sort of ninety thousand cases probably below the surface, maybe even more, um, because statistics-wise, I've really only looked at um, the stats for the UK because we know that sort of worldwide. Um, the problem is absolutely immense. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't really know. I don't personally know. I haven't researched what the problem is in, say, the Middle East, you know, where perhaps um, some people might have come from the Philippines to do domestic work um, and find themselves having their passports perhaps taken off them um, and being enslaved. Mm. There's there's all different kinds of slavery. Um, the one that, that's possibly the most pernicious um, is where people... Come to this country. They're lured for some reason. They're doing an actual regular job in our economy, which could be yeah. it could be cleaning, could be very basic factory work, um, could be chicken factories, um, being paid a wage. But that wage is going into their traffickers or handlers' bank account. They're not seeing any of that money. Um, and some of those people, you know, they're not locked up, but they've been um, psychologically um, psychologically trafficked or enslaved. Either it could be through threats of abuse. It could be, you know, they might not even be being hit or locked up, they, but there might be threats against their family. You know, we know, we know that your family are back in your country. Or they just have become so devastated with what they've gone through that um, they don't re- make a report. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, all of those yeah. kinds of, of, of things. So, so these are the sort of hidden people. Um, I mean, there was one case i think it took place in the in the west midlands you might have heard of it because you're thinking you're a million miles from it yeah. maybe 3 years ago this gang was smashed um, it was a polish gang they were um, we were still under sort of eu rules and people could come here legally to work people from the gang were going back to poland they were picking up guys who were recently released from prison or with a drug problem with a mental health problem bringing them over to the uk um putting them in regular jobs because one member of the gang worked for an employment agency, um, you know, and, and, and was like their star employee was finding all these people. And these guys were being kept in the most terrible situation. Um, you know, they weren't, as I say, they weren't being locked up. They were going out every day and doing jobs. And that was eventually cracked by people at a um, like a soup kitchen. So, so these guys were basically starving. They were going out at night and you know getting food from a soup kitchen. Yeah, and eventually the volunteers from the soup kitchen realized they were seeing a lot of Polish men who looked very malnourished, um, and they reported to the authorities, and that that gang was eventually smashed. Gosh! Um, so yeah, you know, and yet they were these people were living, you know, they were being paid. Well, the employers thought they were paying them, but they yeah. weren't. They weren't paying it into the bank accounts of the guys who were doing the work.
0: So, I mean, it reminds me of um, a story I did. That it's probably the one piece of really top investigative journalism I was ever involved in before I went into the sport. And this is in the 90s. And this was, um, I, I became aware of uh, the plight and the issues that uh, a, a pair of Australian backpackers had had uh, coming to the UK. And they'd had their, they'd gone to work um, picking salads and packing salads for Tesco. And this was down near Chichester. And uh, they'd had their passports taken by the gangmasters who had organized this. And it's a very minor thing because they had an element of, but the, 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 essentially they were bonded labor because they weren't going to get their passports back until they'd done 30 days. And they were in terrible conditions, 80 tents back to back in a compound hidden from sight God. Um, with one toilet and all this sort of thing. And, and most of the people who were involved were from South Asia and being bussed in from, from houses outside the area. Uh, and working 16-hour days and then sleeping on the bus as they went back or living wow. in unfit caravans. And, um, you know, I became aware of this story because they'd managed to get out and and start working in a, in a delicatessen I used to use, and they told me this story, and then it just blew into this huge thing and ended mm-hmm. up being, you know, attacked by Tesco's lawyers to try and Gosh. shut it down. But, you know, there it was. You know, you mm-hmm. didn't have to scratch too far to find it.
1: That is, yeah, it is quite yeah. scary, actually, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. And you those do have this image of the, the, the violence and the. But, well, I mean, uh, the conditions you're describing well, are pretty bad.
0: Well, I mean, they knew better, and they 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 had the, the they had the resources and the, to, and the wherewithal to get out of it, but there were a heck of a lot of people there who couldn't because they uh yeah as you say probably weren't getting paid directly they you know it was going straight into the gang gangmasters and they were getting a a fraction of what they should be paid
2: yeah exactly and then there's one other factor um you know which i've become aware of um which wouldn't apply to australians obviously but people coming from a lot of countries have always been told not to trust the authorities yeah so they wouldn't think you know they wouldn't go to the police in their country so they probably wouldn't know that it's kind of safe ish to go to the police in this country Um, So they just wouldn't know who to appeal to. They would just be completely isolated. Um, And that's what the gangmasters exploit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty shocking, really.
0: In terms of the reaction to that first book of yours, in terms of the reader reaction you've had over the, the, since it's been published and and now republished, um, I mean, it's a difficult tale. and, And given that we're a society that tends to turn our blind eye to people's plight, um, and increasingly, there's a coarsening of the debate around anybody arriving in this this country. You know, they deserve to be treated this way in the view of some people. Um, what sort of reaction have you had from 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 readers?
2: Um, so initially, when um, when the first version of the book came out, um, it was in some shops, which was really you know in a few branches of Waterstones and things. And I had some launches, and I had like we. Re- um, on the ground, there was really good reaction and really good response. And I did some radio and a few bits and pieces. Um, it, in those days, it, well, I say in those days, it was only 2017. wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Um, it wasn't reaching um, so much of the digital readership as the new edition is. Um, so it had very, very, um, it was, it was finding the right readers in a way. It was finding the readers that it was intended for. Um, and it was, getting really excellent reviews. Um, you know, I think for a long time it had like a 4.7 star rating. Um, but of course, once you're, uh, you obviously want your book to find more readers and the current version, um, I think is up to about 700 and odd um, yeah. ratings and reviews. Um, and has obviously found a lot more readers in, in America, which is great because that means more people are reading it. Um, but it does mean then you get the more polarized feedback. Um, so you get the people who, like I really find it too upsetting and so they'll write something rude about it because it's too upsetting and then um, you know a lot of American readers yeah they um, they don't like bad bad language there isn't much bad language but there's some and they don't like uh, they really don't like sex <laughs> so you know <laughs> um, particularly not horrible sex <laughs> um, so yeah a lot of those things then do attract like a negative response but I think that's because it's getting a wider readership but it's not necessarily the readership that it was ideally identified for. So what I do is I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of talks. So they're ba- basically author talks um, wrapped up as talks about um, the charity and about human slavery and modern, sorry, modern slavery and human trafficking. Yeah. Um, and I get quite an audience through that. Um, and I make sure when I'm doing it for things like, I don't know, U3A or Women's Institute or whatever, I make sure they give me a fee don't do it for nothing i do it for nothing for a library or a book club yeah um and then that fee i give to the charity so the oh, fee goes 100 percent to the charity i don't take any money from it um and then i don't have to do any volunteering because i kind of feel like that's my volunteer work that's interesting <laughs> i've done yeah. my you know i've done the best i can to help a charity so i don't have to work face to face with victims
1: but you're also spreading the word through exactly. fiction, which, yeah. you know, in a way is a better way to educate people than just <laughs> yeah. standing there and saying, these are the statistics, these are the facts, this is what's happening, Yeah, oh, go do something. But you're actually, you know, you, you're giving them a way into the facts that's different and they're perhaps going to respond to in a better way or more positive way.
2: Yeah, uh, it's really, it's funny. I've got a few, I've got about three different talks that I can do, you know, like I've got to talk about, um, writing psychological suspense and I'm, but people always want the trafficking one it's quite you know like um sometimes that you know they'll just contact me and they don't really know what I can talk about but they've just heard about me from somebody else and uh, I'll say oh, I can do this one I can do that one I can do that uh, to the extent that I literally if my um visual aids broke down I could literally do it <laughs> <laughs> I could do it without any prompts because I now know it so well so
1: I said
0: I, well, I, I can do it without your right arm at the moment
2: and without my right. Oh yeah. yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't but
1: that. I wonder if that's because there's so much psychological fiction and thrillers around. But this is a is a it might seem like a niche topic, but it's actually
2: it's yeah.
1: it's interesting because people don't know enough about it. They don't know, so they're intrigued. So I can see why that they would think that would be a more appealing.
0: Well, in in a way, yeah. I mean, because a love of psychological fiction, um, I don't want to sort of uh be too sort of didactic about this but it is it a lot of it is about taking people out of a certain situation stripping away all the things that they have protect themselves or rely on yeah and 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 putting them in 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 situations from from a, a, a position of comfort to a position of distress and and conundrum um you know it might be material deficiency or it might be it's certainly usually emotional um mm. you know, pressure and 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 uh difficulty so um in a way this is you've got somebody in in this case who starts off with certain things that they perhaps don't value because uh you know it, they're poor but mm-hmm. they still have family they still have you know a community that they're, they're part of and then take them out of that and strip them of of uh, any agency and that's that's the a, a great basis for 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 psychological fiction and taking your reader into that situation exactly and, yeah and that's yeah. that's really what it's all about though isn't it in terms mm-hmm. of psych, that wider psychological fiction the best yeah. is where you can imagine yourself as a human being being you can empathize and and take that journey
2: yes totally and i think one of my favorite um reviews in fact might even have been a review it might have been somebody might have sent me an email saying it was something like um i've never so." and it was from a bloke as well not a woman um i've never so much wanted to reach into a book and you know drag out a character to protect them which i thought was just a lovely review because yeah. it meant that um the thing about walking in the footsteps had worked they mm. walked in those footsteps and they believed the character and wanted to um do something about it so yeah. absolutely
1: Atticus Finch said that didn't he to scout he said you need to walk in the footsteps
0: do you know <laughs> I said that uh, it's it's I'm finding an echo because I I had a uh an interview at the BBC for a for a senior job that I didn't get and they were asking me you know how would you manage uh because it was quite a technical role in terms of running the uh development of the digital um platforms for BBC sport and I really wasn't suited to it, but I I went from they asked me this question: How would you deal with you know the running all the different aspects of this with all the different teams? And I tried to sort of explain that I'm for me it's important to be able to walk in people's shoes and really understand what they do. But mm-hmm. that was exactly the sort of thing the BBC don't do. And <laughs> I could see that I watched right. the room. You know when you're in an interview and and you, the panel. You could just see them all sort of rocking Blaze. rocking back yeah, and like sharing distance,
1: a glance. Oh, mean?
0: God, he's one of that lot, you know. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> a, he, he deals with human beings. We can't have that. Um, it, was, it was, yeah, that's that's just set off this echo. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's probably not relevant to the, to what we're saying here. But um, it, it's it, taking taking that psychological fiction in terms of how do you ensure when you're writing it, and you've written several novels, that you are able to create characters that people will take that journey with. What's your process there? Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Easy um, question. Well... <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's early in the morning and. <laughs> mm. Well, I like, I, think...
2: I, I personally like the, um, the flawed characters. So yeah. I'm like, um, you know, like I'm not interested. I don't obviously write romance and I don't write up or any of those things. And I, don't read those either. Um, because I suppose if somebody's nice and something terrible happens to them and then it gets better at the end, to me that's really no story. I want to know why the flawed person is flawed or why the maybe average character does something really bad. Um, or sometimes I like to have like a really bad character, you know, like the sociopaths and whatever, and, and try in the course of un unravelling what happens um and going through the various twists to understand myself and to help readers understand why the person was like that Um, so there will be a little bit of background you know a little bit of background um like one of my one of my novels which is more domestic suspense probably than um you know it's not like about trafficking or anything this one it's called facade um that so the title this is about um two sisters who've been estranged for 20 years. Um, you know, the, the family had a massive Georgian house that was all perfect on the outside and it looked, looked all excellent. Um, but behind the facade, everything is completely fallen apart and is, is not as it, it seems like it's really, really bad. Um, <laughs> so I said to my sister, because I've got a sister, I said, oh, I've written a novel that's about two sisters. Um, it's not about us. But if you think it is, I'm the bad one. <laughs> and she said, Oh, well, she said, in that case, that should be easy because you've had a lifetime of practice. <laughs>
0: so,
1: that's only something a
2: sister could was, say. Yeah, it's a very very sisterly thing. Um, yeah. but I think that's right, because I might start off like from the more normal average character, but I'm always more interested in the one who's um yeah, who's definitely bad or difficult in some way or other. And they could even be the the right on, you know, the real baddie. Um, yeah, they could be, they could be really horrible. But I'm more interested in understanding how they tick. I think, mm.
1: yeah, because quite often people mm. manifest bad behaviour because of something else that's not necessarily their fault. Or, yeah, mm. you're Is looking that... at me, there. Yeah, well, oh, both of us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah, we've all we're all bad. and <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: and looking and looking, I'm just sort of scrolling through just as you were talking about facade and your your blurb um i'm just scrolling through amazon if i'm being perfectly honest here it's easy to access yeah i mean there tends to be an international element to some of the settings that you you write um you know in this case you've got a character who's had a life abroad but has to come back after the death of a partner and her life's crumbled and you know seething resentment bubbles to the surface um How important is that that international element to you? I mean, is what what draws you to to putting your characters in their settings and then perhaps bring them into the UK?
2: Yeah. So um, this is where well, often people say um, there's there's often somebody Welsh in my books as well because I (laughs) I am Welsh, (laughs) right? And um, you know, so that some of the books have got some scenes and settings in in Wales, but um, yeah I am very interested in the international settings um, the well, the settings in facade um, I probably I mean they were international settings that I know although not fantastically well um, but the setting that I really loved writing in this book um, was um, so the bad character or the sister who returned um, for a while she's living on a houseboat in Little Venice yeah. I had a fantastic time researching that I just go up to Little Venice and have a little stroll and then look for some harmless person who's working on his boat and, you know, um, immediately start asking them about working on their boat and and what it's like living on the canal and Mm -hmm. finding all that out. So it was like a really great opportunity to research something that looks quite idyllic to me, a lifestyle, Mm -hmm. looking on the boat. Um, And so the other link, I suppose, with that book, uh, Facade, is that, you know, in some way, everybody's looking for home or the meaning of home. And they might have found it, but they don't always even realise when they find it. So they just carry on splashing things up anyway.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I didn't I totally didn't answer your question there. I'm sorry. No, that no,
1: was. no, the no. Hey, we <laughs> the...
0: I, I I'm glad you brought up sort of canal living and because um you know I have a friend who who did that for a long, long time. Okay. Um and uh and I would go and visit her at St. Pancras Basin, something.
2: Oh, that's Grand really cool.
0: Union Canal. And that has changed dramatically from the first time I visited her yeah. boat um king's cross was you know sort of uh, sort of derelict really mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. some pancras train lines rolling behind and whatever and now it's this des with just the most extraordinarily expensive real estate everything's been done up um and google are there and all that sort of That's
1: thing what was a but, but
0: what was what i <laughs> what i picked up from that is there's there is a fantastic setting for a book because the community of all those narrowboat owners living in that mm-hmm. basin um they have a clubhouse which is an old water tower and the the sort of internecine strife between the different boat owners the gossip the it's just extraordinary and some of the relationships that have been created by people living cheek by jowl the other thing i'd noticed about boat owners is you know you think you might have a lot of housework to do boy oh boy do you have work to do with your boat (laughs) (laughs) keeping the damn thing floating and functional and you know shifting sacks of coal to keep it warm or or uh, having to fill up the the water tank every so often, and then you know woes you because it's frozen in the winter. I mean, goodness me, it's hard work.
1: Well, we, we live at uh, Norby Junction, is only just a yeah. short walk away, and I I found it fascinating when I walked down there. I did the other day when we had we had well, how many inches of snow? A few inches of snow. Three, yeah. Yeah, and I went for a snowy walk to make the most of it, and it was fascinating watching them deal with the cold and the snow and you know they're always working aren't they they're always busy and
0: yeah but so many people think it's idyllic but actually it's blinking hard hard work work. yeah Yeah. always
2: yeah and all the malfunctions of the shower you know you have to join a gym so you've always got access to a shower
0: exactly you need one
2: and those kind of things yeah yeah absolutely great
0: but it's it's fascinating i mean you know again it's this thing where you can explore human relationships. Become very, very clear in the way that if you live in a, I, I suppose in Wales a lot of it is 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 quite, it, it's it's one of those places in the world. And I was in Cardiff yesterday, where <laughs>
1: Let's just drop that in.
0: No, no, old I mean, yeah. look the same. Then
2: I hope that's my <laughs> old hometown.
0: Is it right? Well, yeah. I'm 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 enamoured with Cardiff. I, I was a student there for a year, Thank but you. uh yeah. my son's there now and. Um, I'm living it again through him. If I, if I'm perfectly honest, like any excuse to get down to Cardiff. But what it, what I find so striking compared to when you grow up in somewhere like I did in Cambridge, where there is no real sense of community unless it's around um, intellectual uh, pursuits,
2: mm. is
0: a place like Cardiff. Everyone knows each other's business, and everyone but everyone also is very open to a conversation. I had some yeah. bizarre unexpected conversations and that was, was
1: the beer and cocktails no
0: no 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 it wasn't uh, it, you know outside of that that you don't get in other bits of the, of the world and i'm sure as a writer from wales it must be a gift it, it <laughs> yeah. must be because you've grown up in that culture where just everyone matters <laughs>
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, I was that child that was being like dragged around by my mother, who would stop and talk. You know, you couldn't go ten yards without she stopped and talked to somebody else. So I was the one that was trying to pull her along. Come on, come on. But I obviously was absorbing um those conversations as well. Yeah, lots and lots of chat. <laughs> it's, yeah, interesting,
1: I I've got. I nice used to do that too. Like, oh come on, we yeah. <laughs> <to> get home. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the people are genuinely really friendly um in, in Wales so which is which is kind of rare I think in, um, I mean I live in a village now it's a big village um and it probably is moderately friendly but um not, I know not everywhere is so yeah
0: yeah so um in terms of where things stand now with you, you have, you've, you've had your rights to some of these um first books reverted to you so yeah. Yeah, uh, and I've had
2: a I've had a go at self-publishing one of them yeah, as well. I was ask about yeah, that. Mm. So okay, so um, this that was my second book. It's this one called Lies Behind the Ruin. Mm. Um, so that's the original cover, and with uh, when I've self-published it, having earlier this year actually, um, in about March because I just got the rights back, and I didn't. It's a bit like shares; you don't want it out of the market. You know, I don't want my book out <laughs> of the market, but it out there so people can find it. Um, But I didn't, because I've got some stock of these, which I can take when I do Christmas fairs and things or talks, I didn't bother with a paperback. So that one has got a new cover. Um, It's got exactly the same title and the story is the same. It had already been professionally edited to like a high standard. Um, So I reckon that's probably the most cost-effective way. uh, Well, what I paid for was I paid for um, a beautiful cover design, which I'm really happy with um very very moody somebody.
0: yeah it's beautiful
2: but yeah i really like it um it's more on point i think than yeah, the original I one say so. um but i didn't have to pay for any more editing or proofreading or anything so if any self-published book could make money this one ought to and i'd say it's just about it's now breaking even so it's about to start making a little bit of money because <laughs> um but it's only been out since march um yeah. and it has yeah it's had quite a lot of it's had quite a lot of page reads, you know, so the page reads are going well. Um, It's sort of been bouncing around between about, I don't know, 50,000 and um, 200,000 in the Amazon charts. And then suddenly it will shoot up to 25,000, which
0: I think is quite good.
1: Yeah. (laughs) uh... No, it's funny how you get, you get.
0: What have you, what, 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 I mean, that, clearly you had the the, the work was ready uh, apart from the cover, but what have you, um, and your experience of being self-published, has it encouraged you to do more of that? Or is it a question of, uh, you know, ha- mm. being a hybrid and, and having a, yeah. a traditional publisher?
2: Um, I wanted to try it, but I don't feel very... Con- I mean, I don't mind doing some marketing and everything. I do a bit. and um, But I don't feel it's my core skill. You know, I really prefer... I mean, my my current indie publisher, which is always on a book-by-book basis, because I don't write series... No. Um, so I can go, you know, with my current book to Dark Stroke when I feel ready, um, and hopefully they would accept it, or maybe they wouldn't. I don't, I don't know that for sure because it's not a series. Um, I wouldn't rule out, you know, continuing to self-publish, but I think my preference would be to be, um, to be with a small indie publisher where I feel part of the community. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. because uh, you know, Dark Stroke had had a really great author community. We had a lot of um we would do a lot of zoom workshops you know with authors from all around the world learning ways that we can promote each other and help each other and we have like um what do you call it like a twitter group where we all um you know where we all retweet each other's books and and stuff so all that kind of thing makes you feel um like part of yeah part of a bigger whole um and i do like that feeling mm-hmm. Um, so I i find the self-publishing is a bit I so say I almost certainly probably will do it again but um it feels a bit too isolating for me I'd rather be part of an author community
0: yeah so. I think that's very very strong um motivation for doing that and um you know something we
1: we, we do try and we yeah yeah, mean, yeah. Perhaps... We a Facebook group don't we
0: yes we do I mean you know we'd, we'd like to do more of it and 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 indeed you know that development side would yeah that makes sense in terms of organizing some zooms and and probably you know now that's you planted that idea for 2024.
1: <laughs> I, was thinking, I, I was listening to you talk. I was thinking. I bet you he's he's thinking. Oh,
0: yeah. Little, <laughs> we you know, do
1: more of that. With my that
0: hair, awesome. my hair sticking up, which usually means <laughs> yeah. I've had an idea. It uh, does what work I've got because there. then
1: you know because then we support
2: each other's books, you know, and we, yeah. um, you know, we will continue promote because you know the people then because you've seen them on screen even though they might be in America or wherever they are. Um, yeah. You know, I, I do recommend. You know, do do that because it makes the authors feel sort of warm and. Warm and snugly <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, we like stuff authors. So, in terms of, um, I mean, we we were talking at the very beginning of the interview. You, you were saying that you know that your injury has is is problematic when you're trying yeah. to edit your work in progress. So, where are you with that? And 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 bring us up to date on 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 your current work. What's next? Okay, so I've got yeah.
2: one one book which, in in my opinion, is pretty much ready. Um, but I. I'm just in a state of complete frozen not sure what to do right <laughs> sure where um so yeah so it's sort of ready but I just don't know where to send it um and then I've got another one which is at like you know it's a bit on from ugly draft stage and that's the one that my my husband's reading for me at the moment um and then because I'm in I'm part of various author groups um but I I wouldn't say I'm a super fast writer but I probably write faster than my groups can critique it for me uh-huh. so my books haven't had a lot of you know they need a lot more critiquing I've got beta readers um, and I, people that I met on my MA course some of them have gone in the editing direction so you know I might get a bit of help from them I might pay them for a bit of help and mm. um, so I, I don't I never would never submit work that I didn't feel um you know I need some kind of clued up external view that says yes this is okay um, you know you need to do this this and this but then it's um then it's good writing or it's um or the plot works or whatever mm. so I need to go through those stages and then right. yeah I should have like two books almost ready to go fantastic but they're, they're standalone they're, they're they're not you know I'm not going to write a series I think and that's partly because I don't know enough about police procedural um mm. to to write that kind of a series and I do love the um leaping into the research of a new topic um, mm. so that's for myself it keep, I never get bored because there's always something new to research
0: absolutely. so there's a research element. What about the creative um refilling the creative well what what uh what do you read or what do you consume that 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 feeds those ideas
2: yeah um well i do um I do read um a lot for other authors, you know, so I will be to read for others yeah. um, either on a chapter by chapter basis or even a whole book. Um, and I read in my own genre. Um, and then I'm in two book groups and I have to read the stuff for that. <laughs> and then I'm pulling my hair out thinking, I want to read my own choices. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I do like to read prize winners as well. I mean, this year I read um, A Little Life because I was seeing the play. And uh, did you read it? It had been yeah. on my shelf forever. Um, 700 pages is a bit much it's of a bit, It's a big commitment. book, yeah. But I read it before I saw the play with James Norton. It was just amazing. I thought that was just
0: you know, so
1: harrowing. Well, it's a um, harrowing book, isn't it? Well, I was
0: reading your blog about that. Your you, you had a month of um for theatre visits and and opera and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, I read uh, that. And and that was your pick of of all the yes. productions that you, yeah. you you saw. Yeah, I, saw I saw that, and
1: great... I thought I, I thought I want to see it because the book is it's, mm. it's hard to describe the book, but it is it has an impact. I'd say, you know, yeah. you can't say it's an enjoyable book, but it has an impact. It's very emotional and and yeah it lives with you for a long time, so to see that in play form is fascinating to me. I wouldn't mm. be very and, and there is um I think there is a lesson for a writer
2: as well in how it was taken from the book to the stage mm. because they've had to use a particular device to make it work um the play and so while I'm reading those things and watching those things, that's also informing my ideas for improving my creative process i hope um but you know i I am writing you know I love um literary fiction, but I'm writing commercial, and I'm happy to write commercial because, um, you know, I want something that's page turning and that's that's quite fast.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but you can still have that sort of desire to be quite literary in your commercial fiction. Um, So,
0: yeah, no, that's fantastic. (laughs) It's making me
1: quite now.
0: Yeah, yeah, you you have it. Yeah, you've inspired some ideas, and (laughs) we're feeling a a, 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 a tremendous sort of um, upsurge in energy this morning. So, thank you for that. Uh, but I have not. to sort of bring the tone down a bit here because it is uh inevitably time for Rebecca's <laughs> random question.
1: So as it's Christmas next weekend as we record this podcast, do you have any uh quirky family Christmas traditions that other people don't may not necessarily have or you that you've adapted for your own family?
2: Oh, right. Okay. Um, hmm. um so <laughs> With my family, um, one of my one of my children is a shift worker, um, is an emergency services worker, and so we actually have to adapt everything around um, when she's available to work. Um, and so this year, um, I believe she's working day shift on Christmas Day and on Boxing Day. So that means she'll be available in the evening, um, and so um that's my son possibly his girlfriend my husband and I will have to um find different things to do during Christmas day because we don't you know we don't want to exclude it from anything um so most likely we will just be out I was gonna say dog walking I won't be holding the lead (laughs) um pottering by the canal maybe popping into the pub if it's open um so while everybody else is sitting down and eating their Christmas lunch um we will be starving ourselves and waiting to eat at about 6 six thirty. um so eating in the evening basically so yeah it's by it's by force of necessity you know to make sure that we can all be together and by the time we're doing our quizzes and stuff it'll be about midnight and then
1: and it, <laughs> yeah. see I can, I can relate to that because when I was growing up my mum was a nurse uh she was a ward sister my sister was a nurse and there was a period of time when my brother was a hospital porter so there was one year oh. when um I was about 15 or so and they were they were all working shifts on Christmas Day. And they worked out that it was about a two-hour window where I was going to be on my own on Christmas Day. (laughs) And it's my birthday as well. So I was devastated. Oh, no. And I milked it for all it was worth. But, yeah, we used to have to write presents. Sometimes we ate presents at Mm. 6 a.m., everything, and then the rest of the day (laughs) I waited and then had dinner at, like, 8 o'clock when my mum came back from work. And, you know, it was – Christmases were always – mixed up and weird and
2: <laughs> yeah exactly i mean i mean actually the idea of just spending christmas day sort of walking on the beach you know going the nearest beach is only about an hour you know from where we live so it's quite we obviously wouldn't do that because there's still preparation and cooking that has to be done but that to me is quite a dilly yeah you know, just, especially if it's a that. sunny day to just go out and you know when everyone else is indoors getting very hot and sweaty with with the roasts going on, to just be outdoors
1: walking on the beach. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. it's very appealing, isn't it? We're, well, no, we're not. We're no, We beach, are we? But...
0: No, we're not. No, actually, <laughs> that's uh, giving me another idea. Thank you for that. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, <laughs> do you, did your family have any weird quirks? I don't know.
0: No, no, no. I mean, certainly not uh, my sort of family. in childhood. It was all built around church because, first oh, of all, right. when I was a kid, I was a chorister, so... You were pretty busy. Um, and then my dad was the church warden. So he was busy. And the midnight service was always really the the sort of on the Christmas Eve w- was the thing that he, uh, occupied his mind because the drunks would burst in at at, at yeah. midnight. And, <laughs> and he basically had to hire in bouncers um, to work the door because it just got so rowdy. <laughs> um, because, you know, because it was in the centre of Cambridge. And so mm. people would see the light and the warmth and come in, and, you know, stumble in after a few too many mulled wines and uh, all hell would break loose. So that was always a feature. <laughs> um, And, uh, but then, you know, with my, um, my ex-wife, her family had very strict protocols for Christmas, mm. um, which were observed. But the thing that we did, which was a quirky one, was when my kids were growing up, we all played rugby. So we'd go down to the local recreation ground and invite other families across and we'd play mini rugby. And um, the poor old football pitch that we used was destroyed. <laughs> two hours of thunderous big <laughs> yeah. blokes running across with eight year olds running between our legs and scoring tries. Um, that's what we used to do. That was the big tradition, mulwine and, and rugby. So
1: that is, I think that's an unusual one. I've never heard of anyone. Gathering for rugby on Christmas and, Day. And it was
0: funny because I saw my nephew for the first time in, in three years. Um, he's now playing American football in America. And he's, you know, a giant. He's six foot nine. So I wouldn't want to play rugby against him now because he weighs <laughs> 300 pounds. It's all muscle.
1: What's that in stone, though? Uh,
0: he's about 23 stone, 24 stone yeah, or something like that. that. He's an absolute monument. Um, and uh, and quick as well with it. was six foot nine. But... Um, you know, he, they were all, all my, my boys with, with him. And, and, and we were just saying how sad it is that we don't do it anymore, but can you imagine the injuries that they like, <laughs> could be of? Well, yeah, that. exactly.
2: Having been at A&E just a week before Christmas, I wouldn't yeah. recommend going on Christmas day. No. Mm. but It was, it
0: was a joyful thing. And, and just, you know, <laughs> it didn't matter what age you were taking part because, you know, we always let the little guys score as many tries as they, they could. Um, and um and there would always be bust-ups between the two sets of brothers my nephews and my sons uh they'd fall out (laughs) all out with each other and accuse each other of cheating and all that sort of thing um and then uh i would come on briefly because i was never very fit and um we would call out uncle rampage which was when my 20 stone of whatever uh former prop would I would just basically boulder anybody out of the way to get my one try of the, the thing. Um, it was, uh, it was, that was part of the tradition. <laughs> so anyway, well, I would we digressed heavily there, but, uh, look, uh, Helen, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to speak to you and really sorry about, you know, not being able to hold the dog lead and all the <laughs> other things that, that,
2: well you've cheered that, me up anyway Take my mind off it you know, so. oh well thank <laughs> you
0: um and uh for persevering with us um yeah and, and you know you know there were all sorts of reasons this week why this interview might not have happened yeah i know and <laughs> it's... it did, um, did yeah. so uh apart from wishing you a very happy christmas of the best that you can have in the mm-hmm. circumstances uh where else where can people find you online and, and learn more about what you do and your work
2: yeah, well, I suppose probably um, Amazon is the go to place um, because, yeah, if there's any deals, they'll be on Amazon. Um, you know, if you're Kindle Unlimited, it's on Amazon. So that's probably the best place. I do have a website with a shop. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say um, Amazon is is probably the best place to go. OK,
0: fantastic. Yeah. Well, Matthews, um, we wish you a wonderful happy Christmas. Thank and thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing. And tell you what, we are coming away with about half a dozen ideas yes. each. <laughs> so we can, we can give you no greater compliment than that. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
2: okay, that's great. Happy Christmas to you and your families. Hi.
0: Well, we were fired up with loads of ideas after speaking to Helen. And, um, you know, it, often we do from our interviews. But um, I went away and sort of noted down two or three things that.
1: Good. Yeah. Think about. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of uh, things that we can do with our Hobec team that we're uh, going to think about over Christmas, um, and just also about writing. Yeah, she was she was full of energy despite her difficulties that she'd been through in yeah. the past week. Um, it was a great interview, absolutely. Um, but it it got me thinking. Dogs, right? Yes, <laughs> I have a problem with dogs in the in the year 2023. People get a dog. And it's almost like they have a baby. They have to um, nappy train, not nappy train it, toilet train it. They have to take it to classes. They have to, to get up at six o'clock in the morning with the dog. They, the dog lives in a cage and like they, they have certain regimes and routines and mm. it's exhausting. Right? We had dogs when I was growing up and I don't remember any of that. The dog just blended. Yeah, socialisation
0: training for dogs. So that they can interact with other dogs.
1: Oh yeah, yeah that as well. Yeah. I mean
0: Yeah, helicopter dog parenting. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I have a problem with helicopter dog because you you like Well a you dog. came
0: up with the phrase I want to talk about helicopter dogging <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Which is a completely different concept altogether. Wait, it's
1: <laughs> the fact that you went, huh?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just went, What? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I do that all the time, though, don't I? I come out with things and, with a triple entendre. Yeah. <laughs> almost. Okay.
0: Well, no. <laughs> well, I hope the I hope the world's laughing with us. Um, I'm sure one or two will be offended. Yeah. So but...
1: I'm against helicopter dogging. So don't do it.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, as we mentioned. Um, well, I don't need to remind you. Christmas is fast approaching, so. Well, there's I, a tree just there. Yeah, <laughs> festooned with all sorts of things, full of presents underneath, which you've been busy wrapping. Oh, so.
1: I spent what two hours, two, mm. three hours actually, three hours last night. You managed rapping. to
0: wrap something for me without me noticing yesterday.
1: So we were watching The Crown, like I said, and he was sat in the chair, not even a third of a meter away from me. Yeah, you were about thirty centimeters mm. away from me, and I saw this present in the bag, and I thought. I can't be bothered to go upstairs to wrap it. I'll just see if I can wrap yeah. it and he doesn't notice. Oblivious. Totally oblivious.
0: Oh, well that's me. I'm oblivious to most things. <laughs> um, hypersensitive to others. Uh, you yeah, know, it's a it's a it's a tricky world. So, uh week approaching for Christmas. I mean, you know, I've still got most of my shopping to do, it has to be said. Um, I mean this week, last week, I I spent uh quite a few hours on the road. Picking up uh, my son, James, from Cardiff.
1: Driving home for Christmas. It was
0: a bit like that. Yeah, it was. And, you know, catching up with an old friend, Anna. And um, it just so happened my nephew, Fred, was also in Cardiff at the time, as was my other son, Ben, uh, visiting uh, his brother. So it was a bit of a family reunion in many ways. Um, And Cardiff is such a wonderful city for everything. Um,
1: yes i had lots of messages saying i've just had a cocktail oh i <laughs> love cardiff cardiff is amazing
0: yeah, it, is, it, is, <laughs> it is it is it is you know, it's culturally rich and friendly and what a wonderful time you know once the sun's down the place rocks so so many things i like about it but uh and it's got next to the water so you know you can't knock it so uh that was uh last week um and so, you know, I have sort of certain targets of things I was going to achieve by Christmas. I'm beginning to wonder whether that's ambitious. But depends what the targets are. Well, I mean, one of the things we're embarking on is a massive declutter, which to everyone else, if they ever visit um, Hobeck Towers will think, my God, that's a declutter. Um, but uh, I managed to fill a very large car full of stuff to the dump. Well, today. this is
1: actually inspired by an uh, impending visit by Queen Camilla yes <laughs> also known as my stepmother yes you know, they're coming on the 23rd so well
0: yeah i mean that's just put the fear of god into us so we're <laughs> we're, we're busy um, it's just
1: because they have a very 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 tidy house so they do we thought we ought to at least make it look a little bit untidy as opposed to like just
0: a... just a bomb site you know <laughs> like a storeroom yeah it, it has been a bit like that so uh that's that's one of the things we're doing at the moment but it doesn't half help when you do get back to work, so the productivity and the sort of clarity of thinking, which um, is important.
1: Well, that's one of those ADD ironies, I'm afraid, that mm. you you need a tidy environment, but you can't live in a tidy environment because you're not con- tidy.
0: Yeah, no, I'm not.
1: No, same here. So it's, it's, just, it's just a contradiction you can't...
0: It's one of those things that doesn't square, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So
1: you feel better, but I know it's not going to last.
0: Mm. <laughs> so... Busy, busy time, but uh, we're taking, um, in terms of fresh podcasting, a little bit of a break. We'll return with our usual interview series in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so we but will th-
1: do our front and end bits, won't we? Yeah, oh,
0: we do fresh front and end bits, yeah, so the, you'll probably catch up with whatever nonsense has gone on the, in, in the previous week. Um, and uh, But we will start our Christmas festive specials next week with our panel of Hobeck authors talking about crime fiction and humour, which uh, is a terrific lesson. And um, we look forward to speaking to you then. So, uh, just to remind you, of course, we have our website, www.hobeck.net, for all the details of the company, what we do, our authors, our books, our audio books, all there. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at that website. And don't forget to subscribe to our email which comes out, which you'll be writing a little bit later.
1: Yes. What can I talk about this week?
0: Mm, I wonder. Mm. Well, we'll t- discuss that offline. But uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart.
1: And myself, Rebecca Collins.
0: We wish you a wonderful pre-Christmas and... Festive. ...creative week. Oh. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code Hobcast 20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time remember our motto Trad Values Indie Spirit.